Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 139 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. I'm back down here in the Vomitorium. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, uh, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling, Dave? I'm doing really well, thanks. I have recovered from some sleep deprivation that I endured. Okay. You want to, you want to say a little bit about that? Or? Yeah, sure. Okay. So I was traveling in uh, weeks past to California, mm-hmm. doing a little bit of teaching at a seminary down there on uh, one of my favorite topics, Theodore Beza, mm-hmm. and the, uh, the trip back was uh, of epic proportion. Yes. I love it when something mildly bad happens so that you can, you know, milk it for sympathy and comedy. Yeah. Uh, but I don't like it when anything really bad happens, obviously. <laughs> and so this was something that was this really bad? No, no, no. Okay, it okay. was of minor proportions. Okay, gotcha. So last night I was talking to a friend and uh, the person said, so, so I, you know, how was your trip back? I said, well, I was in Pittsburgh. And they said, Pittsburgh? What were you doing in Pittsburgh? I said, because Pittsburgh is the easiest way to get to Baltimore so that I can get to Grand Rapids, <laughs> which is precisely what happened. Oh, man. So Tuesday, I'm in San Diego. Yep. And uh, Wednesday morning, I'm in Baltimore, oh. all in the, you know, purpose. Coast interest. to coast. That's right. Of getting to Grand Rapids. It's quite a continent. It, I, I've flown over it. You have, so, right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. So I, and, um, uh, I imagine that was a lot of uncomfortable... Being you know, cramming yourself into uncomfortable places, oh, yeah. trying to get some sleep. That's and, right. Yeah, oh, yeah. eating airport food. Oh, right. Yeah. Have you been to Midway Airport? I have. Yes. Yes. Why do they have so many non-franchise, non-chain, non-brand restaurants in that I, you place? Know, it's, it's been a while since I've been there, but they, they really, it's just kind of... Well, uh, see, when you're... I like eating local, you might say. Yeah. When you have a chance to figure out the nuances and so forth of the good ba- restaurant from the bad restaurant. Right. So, for example, uh, locally we have Le Kebab. Yes. Great place to eat. I love uh, that place. Real yeah. food, the breakfast place. Another great one. These are not chains. These are fantastic eateries. Right. But when I'm traveling in a strange place, I know what I'm going to get from, say, Burger King or one of those other kinds of yeah, yeah, yeah. fast food places. Yep. But Midway, they had strange restaurants like <laughs> Brendy's and... <laughs> McDonald's. Did you did you take a chance? I went to something called M Burger. <laughs> and how was it? It was okay. All right. Okay, yeah. why, why do places do this? I don't know. I remember last time at, at Midway, I was at Midnight Midway. It took me a long time to figure out that oh, this actually this is not a bus station. Exactly. Right? <laughs> it's just it's just a little bit larger than a bus station. It, it doesn't seem large enough to be a, an actual airport. I know, that's exactly right. Yeah. It's unnerving. Everything is suspect down to the, the cuisine. And the worst part of it was the whole time I'm thinking, this is liminal. This oh. is liminal. Oh, really? Because once you told me airports are liminal, are liminal. I'm yes. stuck. You're stuck, right? Yeah. 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 It's always a, a, a place of, of, of great anxiety for many, many people. Yeah. yeah. And I did a lot of uh, driving of a rental car while I was on this trip. Oh, yeah? Starting out in the San Diego area, then driving up to Los Angeles mm. and visited some friends, uh, Tony and Mindy. Got some fantastic hospitality from them. Excellent. I got to visit the Huntington Gardens and Library. Yeah. I'd never been there. I got to see the Norton Simon Museum. Uh, and on Monday, I went to the Getty Villa. Yes. You, you sent me that wonderful picture yes. about that, um, that tablet of instructions on how to get to the underworld. That's right. That fantastic. I love that. Don't take a wrong turn at Albuquerque. But as I'm, uh, <laughs> as I'm driving uh, this, uh, this, this vehicle, right, mm-hmm. 
um, it has one of those backup cameras. So you yeah, don't yeah. run into anything. And then it broke. But thankfully, there was a backup to the backup camera. There was an auxiliary backup camera? No. Oh, no? No, it's just a stupid pun. Oh, oh, I see. I wasn't following. I was actually thinking. I was excited. That I appreciate that. <laughs> I know what you're saying. Stupid puns. That's a reversal for you. <laughs> Uh, How are you, Jeff? I'm doing well. Nothing as exciting as, um, I mean, I'm, I, I would love the chance to, to get in a rental car and explore some of Southern California. Mm-hmm. I've been to the, I've, it, I've been to the Gettyville, but it's, oh, been, yeah. it's been years and it's, uh, I, I loved it. I'll I actually it. missed you, to be honest. Did you really? I did. Yeah. That's, I'm being 100% sincere because I thought this is the kind of thing that in the past I've done with Jeff. Mm-hmm. I visited these places with someone else. Yeah. There's no one there to absorb my absurd asides. <laughs> you know, my, my funny comments. Who's, you know, there's, there's, yeah, it's a one man show. So you, you went to these places by yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, the Getty, I went to the uh, Huntington library and the museum with, um, Tony and Mindy who were wonderful traveling companions yeah. and, uh, hosts. But at the Getty, I was there so low. So low. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, but it's it's not the same. It right? isn't. Exactly. So how are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing all right. I'm, I was, I was, a, before we, we turned the mics on, I was talking about telling you about how I was getting so sick of the snow days. Yeah. Right. Because then you have to spend time with your family. I know. And who wants to do that? And uh, no, it's that, it's that, um, you know, we just kind of came out of Christmas break and when it's time to go back in my mind, it's time to go back. Yeah. Let's get, and so it was just kind of stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. And that just can, that can really make me very uh, annoying to everybody yeah. else in my household. Yeah, because at your age, what you want is routine. Routine. Yeah, exactly. I need it. I crave it. But so this week was um, was snow day free, and so I'm a much happier man this week Excellent. than I was last week. How are your classes going this spring? Great, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just kind of um, teaching before, anything new and unusual. Um, no, but um, my film class. I'm trying always trying to uh, incorporate new films mm-hmm. just to keep it interesting for me. So I we just watched uh, this week. We watched Hitchcock Strangers on a Train, oh. which I have never never seen before, and um, and had learned that there's a lot of uh, Greek mythological uh, undercurrents in that. And, and huh. Hitchcock liked to use a lot of um, of, of Greek myth in his um, mm-hmm. as kind of layers to his films. And so that Smart. Was, that was really really fun. Mm-hmm. And so I keep it interesting that way. And I, um. And I just got approved for next fall a Greek art and archaeology class. Oh, fantastic. Yep. So fantastic. I'm really excited about that. Can I make a suggestion for your film class? Please. Okay, so I watched a film recently, not just a movie with explosions and such, but yes. an actual film. Okay. The Pod Generation. The Pod Generation. Have you seen this? I have not, not heard of it. It's really, really interesting. What, I watched what, it on the airplane. Break it, break it down. Well, a it's a little bit of sci-fi. It's a world in which... If a person wants to have a child, they don't have to experience any of it in utero. The child is raised in an external pod shaped like an egg. Hmm. And it's it's a really thoughtful, rich drama. You know that my typical song and dance is we got to keep media separate, genres separate. If, if you want to have entertainment, you watch a movie. If you want to think deeply about something, you read a book. Yeah. That's kind of my default. I gotcha. Not hardly anybody agrees with that. They think I'm crazy. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, but this is maybe an exception because the it was very thought provoking, really interesting. Hmm. And I think it would fit in with some of your do, uh, what you're doing in terms of the birth of Athena from the the forehead of Zeus. Right. It's kind of like the same thing. Very interesting. Now, is it a dystopia? It sounds like it could be a dystopia. I don't want to give anything away. Oh, all right. Fine. It definitely has dystopian elements, mm-hmm. but it is also um, subtle and funny. Funny too. Yes. I will keep the pod generation. I will, the I will write that generation. down. I'll, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. I'm mm-hmm. always looking for, 
we do a, um, in that class, it's a genre class. Okay. And so I'm always looking for something um, good in, in science fiction. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of those genres that I think is, is very difficult to do well. Right. Right. Easy to do badly. Yes. Um, but this is do done well. really well. Oh, I will keep that in mind. Gattaca is another one, right? Yes. Yeah. Good no, one. Yeah. Another very, very. Uh, Ethan Hawke. Yes. That mm-hmm. one also in terms of like its themes has aged very well. Yes. Mm-hmm. A dystopia. So, speaking of dystopias, we gotta it's get back time to this for, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for a history of education in antiquity. Right, we're on part five of this part explosion. five, yep. Maru five, as yep. you might say. Well, that sounds like a band. Yeah, right. So this is uh, this is written by um, what is this guy's name? Henri Irene Maru, yes. a Frenchman. Uh, 1904 to 1977, a French historian describes himself as a Christian humanist. His work was primarily in the spheres of late antiquity and the history of education. He's most famous for this work, which thankfully for us was translated into English after its release in French in 1956 by a man named George Lamb mm-hmm. and uh, published by Sheed and Ward of New York. Yeah. And uh, so uh, we're getting back into this after a few weeks away from yes, it. Yes, yeah. a hiatus. Um, and I have found this book. Um, I did not know of this book until you called it to my attention. Mm-hmm. But I found this endlessly fascinating. Yep. Right? It's one of these things where in my own education, I've gotten a lot of this stuff like in bits and pieces. Yes, exactly. But never really kind of connected this into kind of a coherent whole. Exactly. Yeah. That's so well put. It's nice to have these ideas gathered together into one place. Yeah. Something else that I like um, a lot is my early study in the classics was more trees than forest, hmm. right? Yes. So yeah, in yeah. other words, I, I wanted to be really good at the languages, and that requires a lot of small focus. Yes. And I can remember clearly reading Herodotus, Homer, Plato with certain professors, and I would just be really fixed on, is this an optative? Yeah. Is this a third plural? Is this a, a passive? What's going on? Right. And, well, I mean, in some sense that's necessary of if course. you're going to try to learn the material. But there would be occasions where I would have almost no idea what was going on in the actual storyline yeah, or yeah, text. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's not the teacher's fault. It's mine. But now that I'm further along, it's really nice to step back and look at the, the larger picture questions. Sure. Which right. is what he does. Exactly. Had a little bit in the, in the myth class that I just came from about an hour ago. Okay. Um, we're, we're starting to read the Odyssey. And I put it in the context of the other, the Nostoy, the other return story. Right. And, and, um, my students were really quite surprised that there were all of these other kind of stories about these other heroes right. trying to get back home and having all this trouble and, and to, to kind of to see the story of Odysseus in that larger context. Right. I think is, is I mean, you don't need it right. to appreciate the story, but then you see, okay, this is just one part of this much larger yeah. expansive whole. Yeah. So so to make this about me once again. Yeah, please. Do you think that um that my journey counts as a kind of a nostos. Was I one of the nostos trying to get home? Oh, absolutely. When I walked into that food court, yeah. <laughs> looking for something at the M Burger at Midway, yeah, it was just like Odyssey Book Nine. It was like, yes. I'm or, headed into the cave. Am I going to eat or be eaten? Exactly. You were like Menelaus and Helen, blown off course for, That's right. for many, many years. Yeah. And you come limping back home. That's right. Yes. Mm, <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. So, so why, Jeff, would yeah. anyone be interested in Mahu? What's what's the point of this? Well, I think that it's it's. I mean. I mean, to reiterate, reiterate what we were just saying, I mean, he does such a great job of tying all of these things right. together. Uh, so, um, so I think he 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 connects a lot of the dots that I think uh, I think a lot of our listeners have a lot of these dots. Yes, and just he draws the lines between them. And then I think he also does a really good job of kind of really spelling out about how a lot of these ideas and these structures that the Greeks had are still with us. Absolutely, and the debates about like what makes an education. 
uh, worthy. What makes it classical? What makes it classical? What what uh, what's in and what's out? Yeah. These are still debates we're having today. Should it be aristocratic? Should it be democratic? Should it be should, should it be practical? Should yes. it, should it focus on the inner life? Contemplative. Yep. Where's the place for arts? Yes. So on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so we ourselves uh, were educated and continue to be so, hopefully, cradle to grave. Yep. We are educators. There's a resurgence uh, lately in so-called classical education about which there is a great deal of contention and yep. disagreement. Yes, exactly. And so uh, it's time to shed some light on this, right? Yep, absolutely. Okay. So as we get into it, Jeff, yeah. um, what is the subject of chapter five and, and maybe chapter six if we have time? And uh, how are we going to approach this? Well, we're going to chapter five gets us into the the, the sticky issues of the, of the of the so-called sophists. Ah, uh, yes. yes. And then chapter six we get into um, uh, maybe more familiar ground for some of our listeners mm-hmm. of Plato. Yeah. But even as I was reading rereading that chapter this morning, it was a lot of that stuff that I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. And it was surprising. Yeah. yeah. So um, every good author, in my opinion, has a has a combination of synthesis and analysis going back and forth. Right. Mm-hmm. So the analysis is when you take something apart obviously, and the synthesis is when you put it back together. So Mahru is very good at analyzing some of the fine details, but not spending too much time on that, Yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And stepping back and then seeing the forest instead of just the, you know, the trees, synthesizing and putting it back together. Right, yeah, agreed, totally agreed, yes. Um, hey, why don't I do this opening quote before okay, we dive Okay, that would in. be great. Yeah, so I, I found this, this is from an article called Plato's School, the Academy, by one Matthias Baltes from the, the journal Hermathena back in 1993. Hmm. And I, I, I just seized upon, there's no deep philosophy here. Sure. But I like this as, a, as an example of, of kind of the long the long shadow that um, Greek education and, and, and Plato's organization of Greek education has had through the centuries. Mm-hmm. So he writes in this article, all the traditional academies of modern times go back ultimately to the model of the Acad- Academia Platonica, which Cosmo de' Medici set up in Florence around the year 1460 on the model of the Platonic Academy, or at least that was his intention. In this institution, they're taught... Uh, distinguished men of that time. For instance, Marsilio Ficino, who through his efforts in particular made available to the West the works of Plato, which had hitherto been generally unknown, and not merely the works of Plato, but also of his later interpreters, the Neoplatonists. On the model of this academy in Florence, there arose in the 16th and 17th century the famed Italian and French academies, and in the 18th, the German and the Irish. Mm, everyone's getting in on the game. Yes, right. So, um, that uh, you know, we when we often think of the Renaissance, we we often I think many people think of oh, it's the the rebirth of the arts. Yes, and we think of Michelangelo and sure. and Botticelli and, and like, but da Vinci, but the the rediscovery of Greek philosophy, absolutely. And in Florence, as this as this little snippet says, um, becomes kind of a a recreation of Plato's Academy, and it's, and it's just another branch in this tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So while I was at the uh, Norton Simon Museum there in uh, Los Angeles, I got to see a Botticelli. Oh, you did? Yeah, they have one there, the little barrels, and I got to see some Raphael phenomenal. They've, they've got Botticelli's and Raphael's there? Mm-hmm, they wow. do. At the Science? What, what, no, what? Norton Simon. Norton it's Simon. Art Sorry. Museum. Sorry, yes. My speech is probably a little sloppy because I'm on no sleep. Because you've been sleeping on benches. That's in, correct. In airports, right. <laughs> so I love this quote. Uh, anytime you're mentioning uh, the Medicis, that's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I like this uh, statement as well. He says, uh, it was... Um, Founded on the model of the Platonic Academy, or at least that was his intention. Yes. That's an important point because it seems to me a lot of ink has been spilled, a lot of it wastefully, on the question of authenticity, Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So someone will say, well, you know, uh, Lorenzo the Magnificent or Cosimo, which is his uh, grandfather, I think. I think so, yeah. Yeah. 
they're not really recreating the Platonic Academy, so it's not a, a legitimate expression of the same kinds of motives and such that uh, animated Plato. But to my mind, who cares, hmm. right? Right. Isn't that kind of irrelevant? Yeah. Everyone knows that when you imitate something else, it's not going to be a replica. Yeah. And uh, it seems worthwhile if the thing that you're imitating is good, you know, to try to resuscitate it, even with a recognition that it's going to be a very different experience right. in that time and place. Yeah. Now, would you say the, the same kind of thoughts um, bear upon uh, when we use the term classical education? Now, that's a great question. Uh, I think it depends. Mm -hmm. It depends upon whether the inability to replicate or imitate the um, original, if the, if the in, well, if it's an inability dictated by circumstances or if it's um, a disregard mm. right yeah 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 so a classical education to my mind is about the study of the ancient greeks and romans and the literature that that comes from them right so i don't think that one has to have the same level of latinity or skill with greek in order to count it as a legitimate imitation yeah because you know you can't make the perfect the the enemy of the good of course but to drop it as a goal and to say that trying to be like them in their mastery of the languages is an, is an illegitimate or, you know, um, less valuable goal, that I can't agree with. Now you're talking about something completely different. Exactly. Yeah. It's not truly imitation. You're adopting maybe some of the forms, but the motives are completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I follow you. So let's, let's see if we can find an analogy. So here in West Michigan, we have something called broom hockey. Oh, we do. Yes. Maybe it's nationwide. I don't know. I, I would find that hard to I believe doubt that this it. has swept the nation. No. <laughs> swept the nation. Oh, Good one, Jeff. Man. Unintentional. Yeah. All right. Okay. So what is broom hockey, Dr. Wingle? Broom hockey is where it's ostensibly hockey. Okay. You're on an ice rink. Right. Um, and when I played too, it didn't even involve skates. No, no skates. You're no. just on your boots, You're your winter your boots. boots, your moon boots. But you have a broom or a broom-like substance <laughs> right and then there's a large ball about the size of a kickball yes right? exactly and you're you're swatting it down towards the with one, the broom the short ends with the broom trying to get into a goal yes right so it's only you can only describe it as hockey in the weakest possible sense right exactly but so, it, it exists as a game in its own right it, it does right and so i think that and to some degree I, I would be sympathetic to the argument that if you're not in skates i'm sorry don't even use the word hockey Call it something else. Call it something else. Well, some people call it broom ball. Dude, I haven't heard that one. Yeah. Okay. That's actually better. It is. Yeah. yeah. So I guess to go back to classics. Yeah. Right. Imitation, I think, has to try to imitate the purpose of the activity and the impulse. If it, if it can't be identical in form, mm -hmm. if it can't be identical in form, that doesn't mean it's not a good imitation. If, it, if it's not interested in being very similar in form... Right. Then you're talking about a different activity. Yes, exactly. So when, when Cosimo right. um, recreated the Academy, right. whether, whether or not it was a, a perfect imitation, he intended it for it to kind of to, to have the same ends. Yes, the goals that Plato had, which yes. is to create an educated, truth-seeking, uh, logic-oriented um, class of future leaders and, right. and philosophers. Exactly. So it wouldn't be, to my mind, it would not be a good criticism of Cosimo to say, well, you're all Italians. You're, you're not pronouncing Greek mm, mm -hmm. the way they did in Athens. Therefore, the whole project is illegitimate. That seems like a, a quibbling, worthless criticism. Right. Now, what if you were trying to imitate a certain type of kind of uh, affordable cuisine and you called your place M-Burger? <laughs> <With> this... <laughs> That's a callback. 
Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's leave that. Alone. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's a that's a quibbling criticism. Yes. But if mm-hmm. if uh, if Cosimo had said we're going to create the Academia Platonica, but we're not going to read any of Plato's works. Yes. Well, that that seems like it's not an imitation, you know, worth participating in and doesn't deserve the name. Right, right. You're, you, then you'd just be putting the name on the door just to get people in. Correct. It's the bait and switch. It's a veneer. Yeah. And um, is it is it a patina or a patina? What's How do you I always say patina, but I, I don't say patina right. too. Yeah. Patina? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is, in other words, a, a thin layer of a, attractiveness. Yes. But that's it. That's it. Mm. Okay. So it's a great quote. Yeah. Um, It's a great quote. So moving on from there, we're going to talk about the pedagogical revolution of the early sophists. Yes. So can you set this up for us a little bit, Jeff? Sure. So in terms of of, of the the chronological context, we're talking about the era kind of right after the Persian Wars, uh, where Athens... Uh, after the Persian Wars, but before the war with Sparta. Right. Where Athens in particular finds its place in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. It suddenly become very, very powerful and uh, soon to be very, very wealthy. Yes. And so it's, it's... Because of their theft from the Delian League. <laughs> exactly. Right? That's right. Um, but because of all these things, they're, they're quickly becoming a center of military, political, mm-hmm. and cultural power. Yeah. The Pentacontiteia, one of my favorite Greek words to say. That is a good word. That yep. 50 year period from uh, 479 to the start of the plague yes roughly 50 years right. 429 430 and all kinds of incredible things are happening unbelievable during, during this era and one of them are are these um are these these sophists mm-hmm. uh, these kind of traveling wandering um teachers for hire yep that start to kind of ply their wares in athens and elsewhere and uh, gain uh, followings of, of of students so the, the question is as we'll see through malkru is are these individuals uh, legitimate seekers of truth who inaugurated a, a valuable um, revolution in education? Yeah. Or are they snake oil salesmen? Right. Are they selling bottled expertise? Right. right? Uh, take the cap off, pour it around, and you've got what? You've got the appearance of knowledge. Right. And that was certainly Plato's um, take. Mm-hmm. And so Maru will say, we'll read the quote in a little bit. This is really the central question. How much of what we know about the sophists is totally distorted by the Socratic's uh, hyper-conservatism? Right, 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 right. Yeah, I think I like there's something in in chapter six where Maru talks about how um, what happens in the fourth century is you get a kind of organization, maturity, and formalizing of education under people like Plato and Isocrates that is more kind of wild and unbridled mm-hmm. in the fifth century. So, I, I mean, I like the way he treats the sophists. And when I always hear that term, well, you, you hear the term today that someone's engaging in sophistry. Yeah, you know, it's only ever used in a negative exactly sense. Exactly right. It's a, they're a charlatan. Right. And um, and so much, as you were just saying, so much of our picture of these of these guys comes th- via Plato. Mm-hmm. But I think Maru makes the large point that there was a lot of, of um, uh, skepticism, Right. about lots of things happening in the 5th century, and the, the sophists kind of played this necessary role of asking questions that hadn't been asked, mm-hmm. and in some ways tearing a lot of things down for them to be rebuilt later. Right. And so, yeah, uh, there probably and certainly was kind of a, a significant percentage of, of people there being clever for the sake of being clever, yeah. uh, to, make a, to make a living doing this. But at the same time, it was an era where there was a kind of freedom to ask and explore these things, mm-hmm. um, uh, probably under the banner of this of this um, time of prosper, this short time of prosperity. Yes, and peace. And peace, yeah. Mm-hmm. And to go right along with that, um, Plato's key distinction through many of his dialogues is that between episteme, which he counts as true knowledge, mm-hmm. and techne, 
which is a skill or a knack or a trick. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can have a, a techne for, he likes to use common everyday examples, manufacturing shoes, being a baker, being a butcher. You can have a techne of that, but true knowledge requires some deeper understanding of eternal realities. Right, right, right. And so most of what we know about the sophists, which is not other than what's in fragments um, or from Diogenes Laertius or Plutarch, comes to us through Plato, and he is very, very negative mm -hmm. on the sophists. He says, really, they don't have any true knowledge. It's all techne. Mm. It's all just a knack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so before we maybe get into um, exploring some of these figures that are you know, more associated with sophistry, Maru makes um, uh, a good point of showing that even in this early time, even in the 6th century, we do see um, uh, education being organized in various places. He talks right. about there were uh, schools of medicine in Crotone over in Italy yep. and, and uh, in Cyrene. And he also talks about kind of the rise of uh, Pythagoreanism. Um, which also is, uh, uh, Maru suggests, uh, provides a model for the later Plato's Academy and Aristotle's Lyceum. Right. And so we do start to see kind of organized um, education with uh, buildings and, and rules mm -hmm. and, and, um, and, and set programs for both teachers and students. Yep. Yep. I love the way the chapter begins. Uh, this is page 46. He says, uh, thus Athenians born in, to begin a chapter with the word thus. Brilliant. <laughs> Not bad. This is one of those rules um, that I think is totally artificial. Don't begin a sentence with the word and. Right. It's fine to learn that when you're a kid, but adults, you know, they do all kinds of things that are unconventional mm -hmm. and, and brilliant, therefore. I'm talking about style, right? Yeah. Thus, Athenians born in the decade 490 to 480, men like Pericles and Sophocles and Phidias, who in politics and literature and the arts brought classical culture to such a high level of maturity, these men had only had an elementary education which as far as actual instruction is concerned, was not much higher than the level of our present day primary schools. Hmm. That's extraordinary. It is. Yeah. So Pericles, the leader of Athens, Sophocles, the great playwright, and Phidias, the sculptor, mm -hmm. they had like a fifth grade education, right. is what uh, Mahru is saying. Right. He, he ascribes this to the, quote, inevitable time lag between culture and education. A time lag which is often increased by routine, the field of education being a preserve of the conservative outlook. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Mm. That kind of that shift reminds me, if, if I can, uh, if you'll suffer me talking about my film class once again. Oh, yeah, uh, of course. Um, about, uh, so in the class, we do kind of a walk through kind of the history of, of film and, and Hollywood going back to you know, the invention of the motion picture camera. Right. And... And I talk about in my class about there were no there were no film schools mm -hmm. until the 1960s, mm -hmm. and so you know directors that you know, Spielberg, George Lucas, Martin Scorsese, Coppola, they were all products of these early film schools mm -hmm. in New York and L.A. and uh, and such. But before that, if you were uh, you know we're mentioning Hitchcock, Hitchcock kind of learned it from the ground up, and he got into advertising and just kind of stumbled his way into, yeah. into the art in film. And so until you know fairly. Um, in terms of the time, like halfway through our history of film, there was no organized education right. on how to do this. And Very it, similar thing in the 1980s with the learning of, or late 70s, early 80s, uh, programming personal computers. Oh, of course, right. The, yeah, the it, best persons were entirely self-taught. Self there was no school to go to for most of exactly. this. Exactly, and you need those those kinds of of brilliant minds to kind of get the ball rolling into, so, so that, it, that it, uh, it can turn into something else. Yeah, so Sophocles had many imitators but yeah. uh, who were far better educated than he was and also could draw upon 
Sophoclean uh, drama as inspiration. Right. But he, as the original, is really unequaled. Yes. On page 48, I like uh, what Maru says as well here. He says, Every historian of philosophy or the exact sciences feels bound to devote a chapter to the sophists. Hmm. Right? If you hmm. talk about philosophy or you know, the, the exact sciences, physics, you know, such... It is a chapter that is extremely difficult to write and rarely satisfactory. <laughs> Another good move for an author, right? Lowering the expectations <laughs> of yeah. the audience. Right. Because that's what he proceeds to do. Uh, he proceeds to talk about the sophists. Just one more quote. Mm -hmm. He says, Plato's treatment of the sophists was always highly ambiguous, and it has never been easy to grasp where invention and caricature and calumny begin and where they end. There is the further possibility that Plato's representation of the conflict between Socrates and the sophists was really a camouflaged form of his own struggle against his contemporaries. Mm. People like Antisthenes, who was an orator in particular. Mm. So what he's saying is, we don't know just how reliable the portrait uh, that Plato paints, how reliable it is, and how much of this was just his own inside baseball. Right. He was aggrieved against these individuals. He was in competition with them. Right. Right, I think in that the in this the same chapter, Maru uh, points out that um, there does seem to seem to be, even amongst the sophists, uh, a groundswell of of argument that we need to we have this new form of democracy, right? And so we need to come up with a way to uh, to produce people who will, who will do this well. Yeah, I think an idea that well, I mean, Plato was no fan of democracy. No, but um, he was all in his own in his own philosophy. He was very interested in. Um, in providing education so that people could become leaders. Right. Right. But he is interested in good government. Good government, right? Just not he, democracy. Right. He doesn't right. want the the polis, you know, governed by just anyone who's going to ruin things. Right. And so Maru makes the argument that surely that there was a, a large part of of, of sophist, sophistry um, happening that was interested in meeting the demands of the time and Absolutely. not just not just simply being clever for clever cleverness's sake. Right. Yeah. Right. And that there's a definite turn from, you know, the apex of the expression of one's arete. It's no longer athletics or polite society. Right. It's now, how are you going to govern and lead your fellows, you know, your citizens? How are you going to govern them to some um, good end? Exactly. Because of men like Themistocles and Pericles. I want to be like one of them. Look at what they did, right? They saved our our city. They saved our bacon from the Persians. Mm -hmm. We need more people like that. Right. Can they be produced? Right, exactly. While also keeping in mind that um, they were also uh, Themistocles up for ostracism. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right? So, imitate them, but also, I don't know, know when to... Get uh, rid of them. Right, know when to get rid of them. Yeah. Right. One of the very endearing aspects of, uh, of uh, Athenian political culture. Indeed, yeah. So the sophists, right, they introduce a new type of education, seemingly inspired by Pythagoras and uh, Pythagorism. Mm -hmm. Did we do an episode on that? We did talk about the Pythagoreans, didn't yes, we? Yes, we did. Vegetarianism. Vegetarians, right. They had Don't blame us. Or What is it? No, uh, no meat for us. We're Pythagoreans. That's right. Exactly. It was inspired by Ovid, book 15. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So that was, um, I mean, the Pythagoreans, they had, uh, it was education, but with a with a, a side dish of oddities. Of craziness. Right, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Quasi-religion and dietary right. needs. Don't poke beans. Don't poke a fire. Don't eat beans. Don't eat beans. Don't jump over an iron bar. That's right. That's right, right. All right. kinds of unusual things, which, you know, those kinds of caricatures could be the parodies of comedians. We don't really know. Indeed. Indeed. Right. So, hey, can we, you want to talk about the, the clouds 
uh, um, you know, as a as because I traveled through them recently. Well, well, I mean, you can bring that into this if you want. It was just thick fog all around the airplane. <laughs> it was like a pea soup. Pea soup? That we were traveling. There were bits of bacon on the wings. Oh, and that's never good. Yeah, onions hanging from the <laughs> landing gear. <laughs> no, I was talking about Aristophanes. Ah, clouds, okay. Yes. And uh, one of my favorite comedies. Mm-hmm. But um, he's definitely taking. It's. I mean, but it's a weird mixed bag. He's taking aim at the sophists. Yes. But in that play. Uh, the worst of the sophists is Socrates, Socrates himself, right? Right, and and so it 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 really kind of it muddies the waters. It's like sure. Well, to what degree uh, do we take this at face value? Is it all just kind of pure flip flop satire? I think it is that. I think it's flip flop satire. And yeah. my reason for thinking that is that uh, Plato discusses it in the Apology. Right, Socrates says, "Look." You know, you're confusing me with other people. I never said mm-hmm. I can make the weaker argument stronger. I don't talk about meteorology. You're thinking maybe of other people that, you know, talk about um, the things in the heavens, ra, and the movements of heavenly bodies. And you've really gotten just a, a bad uh, caricature from a comic writer. Right. And he's referring there to the clouds, the the frontisterion, the, the thinkery shop. Right. And uh, so... I think he also tries to salvage Aristophanes' reputation in the symposium, mm-hmm. right? On which we will do at least a couple episodes at some point. We need to, yes. And yeah. uh, so there, Aristophanes and Socrates are buddies, right? They're they're uh, speaking the same language. Yeah, and I just I think it's really interesting about how that. I mean, this is a, a side note, but it speaks to the the power of popular culture to shape a, a public view, right? It, it reminds me of. Um, You're going to talk about your film class? No, again? no, no, I won't. But I, it reminds me of like an, an actor. Who finds himself typecast as a particular, like a, oh. a, a, a like a heavy and a gangster film? Sure. And then when people meet them in real life, they expect them to be cruel, right? And so if yeah. the person's like really friendly, they're kind of surprised. Oh yeah. That they're that they're not their character. And so sure. Socrates seems to be saying that most of you know me because you saw this character in this, exactly. in this play. Yeah. And uh, that's not who I am. Another example would be when um, when a comedian does an impersonation of a, a public figure. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the impersonation and its uh, absurdities is so powerful that you start to forget the real person, right? right? <laughs> yes, when yeah. Dana Carver used to do impersonations of George Bush or yes. Fred Armisen of uh, Barack Obama, mm-hmm. I primarily think about those public characters now through the medium of the impersonation. Totally. Because they're so expert. Totally, yeah. I remember uh, arguments that um, in the... The ninety-two election, yeah, that you know George Bush uh, becoming a one-termer. That's George H. W. Bush. G- yes, right. the, the first George Bush. Yeah. Um, lost a, in part to the fact that um, his whole persona became Dana Carvey's ridiculous, you know, right? Not gonna do it, right? That kind, that guy. Uh, it's. I, I mean, I wouldn't. I would never say, oh yes, that's the reason why. But it's 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 a part of a it's part of the the the, the thing. Yeah, right? Aristophanes. You know, to summarize, uh, very powerfully shaped public opinion about Socrates. Yes. It seems. But the reason that I think it's just satire is that both of those individuals are known as arch conservatives. Yes. Aristophanes is the most conservative probably of uh, ancient um, authors while being at the same time uh, the most, uh, what's the word, colorful, <laughs> working blue all the time. Right. Which is is not things that I think today that people would necessarily no, they put don't, together. Right? They don't they, associate they say, those things. How could those two things go together? But yeah, Aristophanes, in the, in terms of his plays, he's constantly pushing the envelope. Right. Yeah. And speaking of pushing envelopes, yes. it's time for the ads. Do it. Do it. 
This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by Racial Coffee. Jeff, tell me a few things about Racial. Well, I love my Racial 8. Okay. I used it this morning as I use it every morning. Mm-hmm. I, I woke so up. So did I. I. I woke up. I got my, my I got the, the metal cone. Yes. I filled up with my favorite grounds. I put it uh, kind of right under the the uh, the pour over the bubbler, the metallic veins. Are you talking yeah. about the Fibonacci head? That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yes. And then I hit the button. And I go sit. Uh, then you had to watch it carefully and fine tune it and direct it to try to get a good cup of coffee. Of course not. It no. does its own thing. It is. Yeah. A, it is a. Um, it's it's genius is in its simplicity. Yes. And it goes through the, those. It goes through those three stages. You got the bloom stage. We have the off gassing of all the nasty CO two. Mm-hmm. Then you got the brew stage where you um the, the 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 hot water comes out of those metallic veins in the Fibonacci head. And then it's ready. Yeah. That's all there is to it. So would you say it's as easy as coffee you might make in a Dakin Blecker? Uh, much easier. What about senior coffee? Senior coffee? No, there's no comparison. Okay. <laughs> Neither of those. Okay. Right. Okay. I've, I've had um, those kinds of machines. And they, right. They usually find their way into the recycle bin yeah. not long after I get them. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Right? So I've had the ratio for a long time mm-hmm. now. And it is, it is, it's going to be around for a long time. I think this will be my fourth year. That's fantastic. For Ratio 8. Right. I was traveling recently, drank mm-hmm. a lot of coffee, um, some of it pretty good at people's homes, a lot of it very bad elsewhere, let me say. Yes. I exactly. was even reduced to uh, gas station coffee at Ooh. one point. Out of necessity? Yes, Just, out it, of necessity. Oh, man. That's... I needed the warmth. I needed the caffeine. Right. Terrible. Right. I was very happy to come back to my family and to my coffee machine. Absolutely. It does. It does. As we've said many times, having a ratio will ruin you for... Um, Getting coffee elsewhere. Yeah. You, you do it at home and it's perfect. What about those Gurick machines with oh. their little marsupods, the no, single serve things? No I, no, I have no, I have no time for those. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, Dak and Blecker, Senior Coffee, Marsupods. Barstucks. Barstucks, you're wasting your time. Exactly. Right. So let's say that um, the listener is convinced they want good coffee. What should they do, Jeff? Well, they should go to ratiocoffee.com. Check out what they've got on tap. You can get the Ratio 8, which is kind of their premier machine. You can get its younger brother, the Ratio 6, which I had for a while. It was, it was great. Excellent, right? Yeah. And then uh, coming soon, the Ratio 4. Yes, very soon. Sometime this spring. Fantastic. While I was in my hotel, yes. right, they have those little plastic trays with a, you know, kind of a coffee tea bag sort of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was just thinking... In a better world, this would be a ratio four. Absolutely. Single serve, but the same high quality. So that's what people have to look forward to. So go to racialcoffee.com, yep. check out their offerings, and I think we have a coupon code. Do we not, Jeff? Yes, yes. For, uh, for January, it is ANCO5K. ANCO5K. What yes. does the K stand for? Um, uh, Boy, man. K is a tough one. Let's see. Uh, kaleidoscope. Is that what, that's what it it's is. It's a kaleidoscope of flavors, <laughs> all of which are wonderfully expressed because of the off-gassing. N- yes. In the yeah. ratio 8, 6, and 4. Nice save. So put in that coupon code and that will get you 15% off your entire order. Check it out. This episode of Odd Nauseam is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. The good people at Hackett Publishing have been in business for... Nigh unto 53 years with their offices in Indianapolis and Cambridge. They have been keeping the flame alive. Now, wait a minute, Jeff. Yes. Are, are you sure it's Hackett Publishing and are you not confusing them with Smackett Publishing? Smackett Publishing? Well, um, tell me about Smackett Well, they Publishing. publish books mainly on hitting. <laughs> really? <laughs> that seems like a very niche audience. It is pretty niche. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I'm talking about Hackett okay. Publishing. Right. Uh, you know these guys. They're, they've got that artwork that's that's uh, that I love so much that that you've talked about just a little bit. It's just a little bit. They're affordable. Um, they have translations, sometimes multiple translations of the same work. 
Um, By all excellent translators. All, all excellent tra- translators. They, Stanley Lombardo. Right. Ambrose. Yep. And Deborah we, Roberts. Yes, we've used all of these, mm-hmm. uh, the ones you've named, on the show. Um, and my students love them because uh, they are, uh, it does not, it does not drain your pocketbook. Mm. And so when you order from Hackett, you know you're getting something high quality and it's not going to kill your budget. That's right. And a wide variety from which to choose. Yes. So it's not just the classics. Right. And they are supporting this podcast. Right. And have have been since almost uh, the very beginning. We're going on four years. Yep. We said, would you like to support this little endeavor? And they said, that little endeavor? Sure. Sure. We're behind it. No problem. Right. Took a chance on a couple of... uh, what? Knuckleheads? Knuckleheads? Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> so, listeners, uh, Dave and I encourage you, check out HackettPublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T Publishing.com. And you will see their massive uh, uh, inventory mm-hmm. of, of academic books from um, across, the, uh, across the, 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 the scope of academia. They've got Islamic studies. They've got philosophy. They've got East Asian, a- East, East Asian studies, as well as um, all kinds of wonderful translations from the classical world. Yes. And we know that many of you have been patronizing them and supporting them. And we're very grateful for that as yes. well. Yep. Thank you so much. We hear from many listeners who say, I'm buying stuff from Hackett. I'm enjoying it. Uh, thanks for the discount. We're really grateful to you. Yes. So if you want to check it out, go to hackettpublishing.com. That's mm-hmm. not smack it. Nope. H-A-C-K-E-T-T. See what they have. Make some selections. Put it in your little grocery basket. And then at checkout, what do they do, Jeff? They type in the code AN2024. 2024. Mm-hmm. Brand new year, brand new bargains. Yep. And uh, the, the the same great discount is applies. That's 20% off your entire order and free shipping. That's incredible. Check it out. All right, Jeff, as we get back into it now after the break, mm-hmm. where are we headed? Well, I think we should we should talk a little bit more specifically about um, what some of the sophists were doing that we know about. You know, again, with the caveat that we might we have to try to cut through that uh, that platonic uh, uh, fog of, of satire, mm-hmm. perhaps. Um, but we know that um, you know, like a notable sophist like a Protagoras, yes, um, he would he was known to take you know kind of young men under his wing for up to three years in a I'm, I'm, I guess in a kind of what would you call it an apprenticeship or kind of I, or it was franchise right or was it just kind of wealthy young men who are who are um, you know idle or I don't had, know were able to do this for a time. Let me read a little bit from Mahru here, page yeah, forty nine. Protagoras was the first to offer to teach for money in this way. Mm. There had been no similar system before. The result was that the sophists did not find any customers waiting for them, but had to go out and persuade the public to take advantage of their services. Hence arose a whole publicity system. The sophist went from town to town in search of pupils, taking those he had already managed to catch with him, to make himself known, to demonstrate the excellence of his teaching, and to give a sample of his skill he would give a sample lecture, what is called an epidexis, a demonstration, either in a town through which he happened to be passing or in some pan-Hellenic sanctuary like Olympus, where he could take advantage of the Panegurus, the international assembly that gathered there for the games. Hmm. So it seems to me like it's it's sort of like being a tennis pro or a golf pro, mm-hmm. right? Every uh, big successful health club has one individual uh. on retainer Yes. Who's a specialist in this particular field, right? Right, right, right. And their job is to coach and uh, teach others how to be like them. Yes. Never with the understanding that you're going to become a professional yourself, because I think yes. that, that training is more specialized. 
but with the idea of helping you uh, learn how to enjoy the game more fully. Right, right. Well, kind of the, the, the added element, which I find so interesting, is that you know, Protagoras would take this on the road. Yep. And he would go to places where there were already large crowds. Right. Right. And so, L- like the snake oil salesman, exactly the, the traveling apothecarist. Right, you set up your tent and you you start yelling, "Gather round!" And you then you kind of show off what you can do. Right? Hopefully, you have a little monkey on a leash, right? And you're you're cranking one of those <laughs> the, the, things, the, or the the, the, the monkey organ, grinder, right? the organ grinder, organ grinder, right? Yeah. right, 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 yeah. It also reminded me too is. I think I see an element of this kind of thing that you know that comes across my social media as you've seen like these master classes. Oh yeah, and so you again you can watch a uh, you know a minute and a half trailer. Some fairly famous people. Yes, and you can do master class in acting, in right. painting, or music recording, and it's very similar. And so it, again, these are are these kind of our modern day sophists. Hmm. Like for a fee, mm-hmm. I will let you know my secrets. Mm-hmm. So on page fifty, Maru says that this phenomenon gave rise to the public lecture, mm. a literary form, which ever since those earliest days has been quite astonishingly popular. Yes, indeed. So that's the birth of the notion of the traveling lecturer. Traveling lecturer, right. Going, I guess would be kind of like the stand-up comedian. People don't come into town now and lecture on, I mean, very often, abstruse topics like physics and so forth. Yeah. Not in a public setting. That's usually restricted to the classroom. Right. But this is what they were doing in the past. He says, quote, some of these lecturers were open to anybody. Hippias, haranguing the crowd in the agora with the money changers table quite close by, reminds one of the speakers in Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A London reference, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Others were for a select audience only and had to be paid for even at this early stage. It reminds me of Patreon. Are you ah, familiar with that yes. kind of uh, model? Yeah, exactly. Right? You can be different levels of commitment. I have one for Latin per diem. But yeah. Anyway, some stuff is freely available to everybody. Right. But if you really want to get the best stuff, you have to be an initiate, and that comes with a fee. Right, right, exactly. This is what the sophists were doing. Yeah. Um. I think the next next question to explore then, okay, uh, that's the what they were doing, but okay. what, what exactly were the students getting out of this and what exactly were they teaching? Well, one thing they were teaching was the art of politics. Okay. So what do you mean by that? Well, let me quote from Mahru again, page 50, because he gives an excellent answer. Okay. We must now consider the content of this teaching. Its aim was to arm the strong character, to prepare him for political strife so that he would succeed in imposing his will on the city. This was apparently Protagoras's intention in particular. He wanted his pupils to be made into good citizens who could not only rule their own homes properly, but also conduct affairs of state with the utmost efficiency. His aim was to teach them the art of politics, politique techne. Okay. All right. Political skill, the kind of particular craft that you need within the polis. Right. Now, the way that Maru describes it there, that doesn't sound like a huckster. That's no. Like somebody doing something fairly worthwhile. So why would Plato find fault with it? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> Can we think of a contemporary analog? Um, I was thinking of lobbyists, but mm. lo- lobbyists are not really trying to teach anyone how to govern the state. They're more no. just trying to uh, satisfy a particular interest. Right, 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 right. Most politicians come from law school. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, there are some business, there are some businessmen and women who go on to politics, but it seems like if you want to be a public figure, law school is in some ways the best training. That's that's what they say. Right, right. I used to think that law school was about the, was well, like being in Plato's Republic, you know, the, the dialogue. It's about discussing the nature of the good and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then I met some people who had actually been through law school and they said, it's not like that at all. What, how do they describe it? It's right. just like a vocational school. It's okay. learning how to 
um, I don't know, to work on cars. It's learning how to program. It's highly technical and really specific. Gotcha. It's yeah. not about big ideas. It's about um, fulfilling minor functions. Okay. All right. So what did you, what, so you would say that uh, like a guy like Protagoras is, so where would he fall kind of between those two poles? In, uh, tech school. Tech school. Okay. I mean, this is Plato's constant criticism. Right. You're not really teaching people how to become better persons, if that's even possible, which Plato doesn't believe. Right. You're just teaching them really a sophisticated art of manipulation. Yes. Yeah. How to get from your fellows what you want. Right. Right. Um, one of the things I, I got from Maru that he suggests that um, guys like Protagoras or the Sophists were, in many ways, kind of pushing back against the pre-Socratics in a lot of their musings about, you know, what what is the nature of the world? You know, is yeah. it the, the, it, can we reduce it to these these core elements? Right. Is it mind? Is it is yes. it water? Is it air? Fire, right. And Protagoras would say, all that stuff just doesn't matter. Yeah. The only thing that matters is the here and now. And uh, if you're going to learn something, learn some kind of practical skill to to win right now. Yeah. Yes. Well, this is uh, borne out by uh, page 51. Okay. He says, this education developed in the direction of a relativistic humanism. So not the good kind of humanism, which is, you know, like Terence. Mm -hmm. Everything, I'm a human, nothing human do I consider foreign to me. Right. But a relativistic humanism. So this seems to be expressed, to continue the Maru quote, in one of the few genuine fragments that have come down to us from Protagoras, the famous formula, man is the measure of all things. Right. A great deal of mischief has been done by trying to give this a metaphysical significance, turning its author into the fountainhead of phenomenalist empiricism, a forerunner of modern subjectivism, which is the idea that the subject alone is responsible for uh, all meaning that exists. Right. Similarly, on the strength of the few echoes that have come down to us from the treatise On Not Being by Gorgias, it has been suge suggested that Gorgias was a philosophical nihilist. This is a gross exaggeration, says Maru, of the meaning of the passages concerned, which were intended to be taken at their face value. Neither Protagoras nor Gorgias had any intention of creating a system. Both were simply concerned to formulate a number of practical rules. They never taught their pupils any truths about being or man, but merely how to be always and in any kind of circumstances right. Right. Okay. Yes. That's very well said. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it, it, it brings us around to, um, I think this, this question that our culture is still trying to come around to, that what is the, what is the primary aim of education? Yeah. Right. Is it, is it, um, as you know, maybe a protagonist here would say it's, no, it's, it should be purely a practical one. Yes. You learn the technique because you, you, you need the technique to deal with what's in front of you right now. Correct. This uh, is one of the ways that many people avoid the question of the ends or the goals or purposes of education. They just rule it out of order. Hmm. They say it's an irrelevant question hmm. and we need to focus on the means and Plato would say, that's entirely incoherent. Right. Right. Until you know your destination, you can't use the map. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But what do you think? Well, it, it reminds me of when you know, students come to me for, for advice about majors and minors. What and, should and, I major and, in? That kind of thing. Right. And, and, um, and so it often comes, these are students who come, will take a myth class or, or, or something along those lines, and they love it. And the question is kind of born out of, I love this, but I don't know what to do with it. Right. right? And, and so, and certainly, you know, having, you know, taught at a, a more traditional four-year university and now teaching at a community college, mm -hmm. um, I've been presented with, um, you know, uh, 
kind of an ethos of education, one that was at least on paper was kind of more more lofty, and it's mm-hmm. about you know educating the whole person, and it's it's not it shouldn't really be about you getting a job. Yeah, and then at community college where most students come in and, and their aim is often very practical. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I want to do this because I want this very specific job at the end of this. And so, um, yeah, I wrestle with that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, my advice to students often is along the lines of, you know, um, if you have it within your time and your budget, um, uh, balance, you know, have, have a, a practical major with a, a, a major that's kind of more, I'm going into radiology, but if you can do minor in philosophy, or uh, music, know, film, exactly, and and find some ceramics, and kind of think of it. Yes, that yes, um, educate the whole person, mm-hmm. but also I think um, a more Protagorean approach is that you know you you have to deal with the world with you in, in some sense as it is, yeah, right. And so it's all well and good to kind of adhere to kind of the lofty that education just be, should be about forming the the moral inner person. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to kind of recognize that of these externalities as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, how would you? How do you? How do you think about that question? In a very similar way. Okay. And I think that the the truth is that most of this is introduced by the question of money, right? Mm-hmm. So I I am myself um, of a free market orientation. I'm very much in favor of a free market, but I, it doesn't follow from that that a free market will necessarily value good things in each and every case. Right. Some things are really valuable and have no um, monetary value that you can assign to them. They don't have a market value. Yeah. Philosophy is one of these things, literature. So, you know, when someone's listening to one of their favorite songs, you know, reading a book, watching a movie, they don't come to you and say, now what am I supposed to do with this? Right. Because what it's supposed to do has already been accomplished. Mm. Enjoyment. Yes. uh, Relaxation, peace, the stimulation of the imagination. Yeah. But if they have to pay for a very expensive education, then the question naturally arises, what am I going to do with this? Sure. Right. You don't have to say, um, you know, the cost of going for a walk is pretty much nothing. You just, you just go take the walk. Mm -hmm. The cost of buying a, a fancy luxury vehicle is very high, even though they're both modes of transportation. Yes. So before I buy a very expensive vehicle, I feel like I need to have some justification for it because there's a huge cost. Right, right. And I think this is why Plato says um, you shouldn't charge for education. Hmm. He would only take money from students if after they were finished with their education, they voluntarily bestowed it upon him as a gift. Ah, yeah. If you charge up front, there's something artificial about it that ruins Hmm. the system of education. Now, both of us as educators, right? (laughs) I think we like the credit and trust placed in us that we're going to deliver a good product. Yeah. And so I like that system, but inevitably it skews the activity to where students have to ask the question, yes. what am I going to do with it? Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I, that's very, I, you put it, I think you put that very, very well. And I think that, yeah, it's the heart of like when I when I wrestle with trying to find ways for my students to, to balance what they, they're passionate about. Right. And, um, but also kind of the practical needs of having to, to pay rent yeah. at the same time. And I think it's kind of irresponsible what I have heard some people say. People like us who have advanced degrees in the humanities mm-hmm. and a lot of love, I think for them, I think it's kind of irresponsible to say, you shouldn't ask that question. You know, just study philosophy, just study music. You're selfish, they would say. I've right. heard people say this. You're very selfish to wonder what's the practical benefit. I don't think that's a selfish question. No. I think it's an inevitable consequence of the cost involved in the activity. Right, exactly. The lower the cost, 
the less pressure there is, you know, to get something out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me of, um, you know, we've talked about Joseph Campbell mm-hmm. on, on the show. And uh, one of his famous quotes is when he was asked by students, like, you know, what should I do with my life? And his famous quote was just simply, follow your bliss. <laughs> and, you know, and I don't like that slogan. I don't like that. I don't like that either. Uh, but I mean, I think a lot of students are attracted to kind of the romanticism. Of sure. It. And, and his idea was that, you know, if you simply follow your bliss, the universe will take you where you need to go. Nah. Right. Uh, so. so another another uh, way to look at this is this question in the past was solved very easily. Um, by the understanding that not everyone should seek certain types of education. Right, right, right. So it doesn't have to be practical if you're not compelled to study it. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that the, I mean, the world has, has changed so right. much in that, um, yeah, in, in some ways to, um, to reach the upper echelons of, of any, um, part of the economy, you almost have to have some sort of degree right. as your entry ticket. And so that implies that oh, the college is for everybody. Right. And then add to that just the the, you know, the cost of tuition, yeah. you know, outpacing wages. That, and, and inflation and, exactly. by something like 400%. Right. It, it, it's, it's, it's reaching, a, it's, it's reaching, it seems to be kind of, well... Are we getting a little preachy? Because well, if so, I'm totally happy with no, that. I'm not getting preachy, but I mean... <laughs> it's I, a recipe for disaster. People have been talking about for this year, for years about yeah. that we seem to be reaching a, a breaking point or the bubble's going to pop. Right. And... Um, it's hard not to, to feel like that's on the horizon. Well, in some ways, I think the sophists solved this, although their solution is not one that as a, you know, someone highly sympathetic to Plato, their solution is not one that I can accept. Mm-hmm. Right? They partly solved it by saying, we're just going to teach you how to succeed in politics. We're not going to teach you morality per se. Right. There's something mm-hmm. almost Machiavellian about it. Yeah. Plato's objection was you can't ultimately divide those things. You have to keep them together. Yeah. The quality of the soul and the quality of human life is inseparable from the art of politics. Right, right, right. Whereas the sophist said, well, we'll just divide them up. Right. In the modern context, you know, if someone wants to be a lawyer, a doctor, do they have to have a human, uh, a liberal arts training? Right. I would say no. Mm-hmm. But if they're going to have one, it has to be more than just a veneer you know, that's kind of sprayed over yeah. strong technical knowledge. Yes. Would you say that... Um, you don't spray on veneer, by the <laughs> way. Sorry. Um, would you say that um, in in the the best of its intentions, something like the, the, the more um, recent moves towards classical education, however, whatever, that, mm-hmm. whatever that means, is a response to this notion that um, oh yeah, uh, the Amer- the idea of an American education is becoming much more is, oh. is too too vocational. Yes, enti- uh, entirely okay. pragmatic, yes, right? right? It all starts with Alexis de Tocqueville in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. He said um, uh, the American people is the most pragmatic people you'll ever meet. He yeah. he knew this. It's going on 200 years ago now. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think we should push back against pragmatism in some sense as the be all and end all of our existence. It's, right. it's not right. But some of the solutions they don't really address the problem yeah. right, of pragmatism. So one of the ways is, well, everyone needs to have a practical education, but then they'll just take a sampling of liberal arts. And yes. That doesn't really serve either goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It'd be better just to div- to divide them up, I think. Right. So you yeah. can become a dentist, but then you can take a year off and get some real mastery of the Western corpus, for example. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, interesting. Yeah, this um, in some ways, yeah. The, so these, I mean, these arguments, these perennial, they've never changed. Yeah, right. They're still there. And so, um, yeah, the the vita activa versus the vita contempliva, right? Mm-hmm. As, yeah, the, the 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 practical, the active life versus the contemplative life. Yep. And we haven't even touched on uh, dialectics and rhetoric, right? Which became an overwhelming part of the curriculum. It did. Because if you're going to be able to uh, teach people the art of politics, it's primarily about public speaking. Yes. Have you followed any of the recent uh, Iowa caucus, the caucuses, and the uh, the New Hampshire primary, and so forth? I, I just in the kind of the, the headlines that pop up in my feed, but uh, uh, election years always make me queasy. Very queasy. Since I try, I try to stay away from it until it's right. completely unavoidable. Right? Yes. Yeah, so one one conclusion you can draw is that there aren't soaring heights of rhetoric much anymore. Right. But I'm not sure that's all bad because I think rhetoric. This is a Platonic idea. Is, is probably more often used to harm people than to help them. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't really bemoan the lack of, of eloquence among uh, politicians. Wouldn't you say also that, I mean, since the, the invention of the television, politics has much, become much more image-driven than it is? Well, that's what they say. Yeah. The famous uh, Checkers speech of, uh, not the Checkers speech, but the, the previous one with Nixon versus Kennedy. Kennedy, yeah. Uh, Kennedy won because he's photogenic. Right. And Nixon uh, was sweating was bullets. <laughs> yeah. Right. But on the substance, you know, who knows who's the winner? Right. All right, Dave, uh, we're up against it. So we got to get out of here. Is someone trying to use the, uh, the vomitorium? Well, I, I did hear some banging on the doors upstairs. Are you have any idea who does that crowd is out there? It sounds like it might be the society for the undoing of limerick knavery. Oh, those guys sulk. Yes. That's an ornery bunch. They've heard the limericks you've been reading on the air yeah. and they are outraged. Wait, they're upset about my limerick? Yes. That the, the they like yours? Is that? Of course. Oh, God, man. Okay. You've well. You've read none. So. All right. Okay. Well, I'm getting sweaty thinking about running that gauntlet. So let's, let's wrap this up. <laughs> but right. before we get out of here, yeah, you need to talk about the Moss method. No, I believe you. Need oh, to is talk it about me? It. Yes, you're okay, the one. I'm sorry. Yeah. One of us needs to talk about the Moss. Would method. you please tell us about the Moss method? It's a way to learn Greek. Go to mossmethod.com. Check out the program. It is affordable, self-paced, and expert. It'll take you from uh, neophyte to erudite, I believe. That's correct. Thank you very much. What's your favorite feature, Jeff? I love the Moffice Hours, where you get these people from all around the world uh, at a designated time. They get to interact with you. That's no, right. No flunky, no, no underling. F- that's right. Uh, direct access to the boss. Uh, that's my that's my favorite part. Okay. Yeah. I think that uh, there may be better Greek programs out there. I can't say with any kind of certainty, but I'm really confident there's not a better value. Hmm. The combination of affordability, direct access, and uh, the quality, comprehensiveness. I've been teaching and studying Greek for a long, long time, more than three decades, and I've distilled all that knowledge down into this course. Excellent. So if people go to mossmethod.com, they can sample some of the free uh, Yes, the free many, videos. many. Mm-hmm. Yep. Excellent. So yes, uh, check that out. Now, what about L- L- LPSI? Yeah, so that stands for Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, the program I've developed for um, teaching yourself Latin with my guidance and help. Latinperdm.com slash LLPSI. The first unit features chapters one through nine of Hans Orberg's famous book, The Familia Romana. I'm teaching four students in the studio, and uh, you can learn from their successes. You can learn from their mistakes. Uh, it's, again, a very affordable and expert program. Excellent. So, and where do they find that? What's the latinperdm.com slash LLPSI and more than 2,000 free instructional videos. If you don't want to pay for the course, 
That's fine. I give a lot of my knowledge away. Mm-hmm. I kind of like Plato instead of Protagoras. Yeah, way to, way to tie that back. Thanks. <laughs> so please check that out. All right. As always, we have to we have people to thank. Mishka, our wonderful engineer, turns this around, makes us sound uh, way better than we actually are. We got Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin that uh, provide that screaming guitar, that wonderful mm-hmm. music you hear throughout the podcast. The bumper music, yep. the intro, the outro. Uh, Scott with those blazing arpeggios. Incredible. Yep. And hey, check out our website, adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V there. Uh, you can um, pick something up from the store. Mm-hmm. These wonderful Quinocent t-shirts. That's the, correct. The black and the orange. Yes, kind of an attic vase theme. Yes, exactly. You can send uh, an email to Jeff. You can say, Jeff, that was a great show. How do you put up with that other guy? <laughs> right. And that would be Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. You can ask him questions about pop culture. He's Johnny Pop after all. That's right. And if you got questions for Dave, suggestions for, for, for episodes, complaints, please write to Dave okay. at Dave at Don't forget that V. And Jeff, what are we doing next week? I think we're uh, we're doing some we're doing an interview. Right? Yes, we are. What, what's this all about? Uh, so this is with Steve Maiulo and uh, Ann Larson, who are our colleagues over at Hope College in uh, Holland, Michigan, mm-hmm. and they're going to talk to us about the Renaissance uh, Athena. Uh, a woman uh, from the Netherlands, uh, Anna Maria von Schoermann, who was just a brilliant philologist and a very important scholar. And uh, they are experts on this particular woman, and they're going to be on the air, this particular scholar, and uh, talking to us about that. Fantastic. This is something that I know nothing about. I'm looking forward to learning all about this. This, this sounds co- very cool. Yes. Yep. And uh, Jeff, I believe you have the gustatory parting shot. I do. This is a, a modern Greek proverb, which goes like this. Life is a cucumber. Either you eat it and are refreshed... Or you eat it and struggle. <laughs> so as I understand, this is uh, supposed to be like, uh, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Oh, so it's a cucumber. You eat it and are refreshed. Or you eat it and you struggle. Have you ever struggled through a cucumber? I, I enjoy cucumbers. Yeah. I've never, never thought of it as a struggle. A little bit of vinegar, a little bit of salt and pepper. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Hmm. Great stuff. All right. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.